I was already hungry when we pulled into paradise. But when my friend Fern said, do you want to stop or do you want to keep going? I threw my arm out the window and said, let's keep going. So she turned north. Fern and I were on our summer vacation, and the day we drove through Paradise, our goal was to get to Whitefish Point. Do some of you know it? If you, if you don't, if you can picture the Upper Peninsula, you know how there's that one big fin that goes up into the lake, and then over to the east, closer to Sault Ste. Marie, there's a, a smaller fin. That's Whitefish Point. There's a museum there called the Great Lakes Shipwrecks Museum. Anyway, we parked, and we parked farther away from the point than we intended. We got out of our car to start the walk, and my friend Fern said, I just want to go out as far as the point. And I have to tell you, I knew it was farther than she thought. We climbed down onto the beach, which isn't sand, it's smooth stones. And in fact, most of the people we saw there seemed to be there expressly for the intention of collecting rocks, like adults with little plastic carriers with handles, one of whom was like sitting in the water, examining rocks both in the sunlight and then down under the surface of the water. We passed those people and there was nobody for like the whole mile, maybe mile and a half ahead of us. There were some big houses that were set way back from the water's edge along the tree line. But it was a pretty empty place. Way up ahead of us, I saw that some folks had dragged a couple of folding chairs down to the beach and somebody, maybe a neighbor, had stopped with their dog. But like I said, it was mostly pretty empty. And we walked, the water along the edge was very, very clear and still. Kind of striking for a place so close to a shipwrecks museum. But it was very still and very clear and pretty cold, although not as cold as Lake Superior gets um, credited as. So I was walking ahead of my friend Fern and I started to recognize the place. These houses, the tree line, the, the sparseness, because it was a summer day and it was beautiful, but the sky was this kind of cold blue and it was huge. And the colors of the beach, although beautiful, were sort of muted, like sandy tans and pinks and different colors of gray. I started to recognize it, like I said. About halfway up the beach, I remembered a dream that I had, or I started to remember it. And it was a long time ago. But in the dream, I was on a sparse beach with cold blues and sandy tans and, and great big sky and a tree line set far back from the water, although it was winter in the dream. And in the dream, I was either looking for or hiding from my mother. Like I said, I don't believe in talking about dreams. Are you already bored? In the dream, I was in a state park, I think, and I think Whitefish Point is. So I said to Fern, who was behind me as we were walking unevenly along the water on these rocks, I said, I think I recognize this place. I think I had a dream about it. And Fern said, do you put stock in that kind of thing? Like, what meaning do you make out of it? 
So as I said in the welcome, I don't dream very often or I don't remember the dreams that I have. But these days, this month, I'm dreaming all the time. And they're mostly not good dreams. I wake up agitated or frightened. This morning, I had a dream that I was starting college again, and I kept missing the first meetings of the classes that I was supposed to attend, one after the other. And then I would miss a second class of the same course that I missed last week. Like in the dream, it was so specific and vivid. This is a Thursday, Tuesday class, and I missed Thursday. Maybe I can make Tuesday, but somehow I had missed it. Maybe the professor would understand, I thought, in the dream, or maybe I should just put it off until next semester. I had to move into a dorm, and I had a lot of feelings about being so much older than everyone else. But in the dream, I hoped that maybe my personality would carry the day, and I'd like make friends anyway. I thought, I'm not that much older. There was like more to this dream. But like I said, not interesting. Last Sunday night, I dreamed about Dan O'Connell, a regular French horn player. I dreamed that he was in some kind of danger, like maybe he'd gone missing. And then I forgot about it until our staff meeting when the feelings washed over me so strongly that my eyes filled up with tears. I mean, basically, I started to cry, but I was like too embarrassed to write that down in the first sentence. Or the dreams I'm having are just dumb, like very specific and dumb. I dreamt, apparently, I thought it really happened until I confirmed it this week, I dreamt that two good friends and I discovered a door on my secular advent calendar that seemed to make a nod to Judaism. And in the dream, we agreed that an advent calendar is one place that interfaith content is really not necessary. So to answer Fern's question, here's the meaning I make of dreams, either nothing, or I'm experiencing a lot of feelings, anxiety, and stress, and fear, and uncertainty. And the dreams, most of the time, aren't about anything. And when they are, what they're about is just the feelings. Like, Dan O'Connell is actually fine, correct? As far as we know, wonderful. And I realized this morning when I woke up, thank God, that I am not secretly starting any academic program. I thought briefly at this point in the sermon that where we were all going to go was that Joseph would have disagreed. Dreams are more important, I thought I was going to say next. But it turns out, for me, this Advent, that's wrong. I think Joseph's dream about his pregnant partner was also about his feelings. His feelings maybe of fear or anxiety or disappointment his feelings about the fact that this was not going the way he had thought. Anxiety, sorrow, disappointment, his feelings about the fact. I don't know, of course, anything about his feelings. The only thing the Gospel of Matthew tells us about Joseph's feelings is that he intended to leave Mary quietly, which technically, by a lot of measures, was the right thing to do, and the kindest way to do it. But that's the only thing the story tells us. The story does describe a person who, if he really was a person, could have felt any or all of that disappointment, sorrow, anxiety, fear. He could have felt torn about what was technically the right thing to do. He could have felt torn about whether it was what he wanted to do and felt relieved that he had the law to back him up and maybe guilty that he felt that way. Or he could have felt torn about his temptation to say, you know what, who cares? I'll just marry her and people can think it's mine. It's fine. The story merely describes a person who had a dream, 
a dream of an angel quoting scripture, which is pretty specific. An angel telling him not to be afraid, but to go ahead and get married to this woman, and that the pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. In the dream, in the book of Matthew, before we have the book of Luke with its story focusing on Mary, before the creeds we wrote to make meaning of all this, before the Christmas songs, before the theology of the incarnation, in the dream what the angel says is the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All the story says is that Joseph wake up from, woke up from sleep. Did he remember his dream as he woke up? Or was it later that day? Oh my God, I had a dream last night. The feelings of the dream washing over him so strongly. Don't be afraid. Go ahead and get married. That that's what he did, and that's what we know about it. That's all we know about it, until she gave birth to a son, and Joseph named him Jesus. A question I've had for a long time is, who cares about Joseph? Like, more specifically, who cares about who Joseph was, his lineage? Before the passage that Vince read, we get all of these names, Joseph's ancestors. Who cares? What does that prove? He gets called the son of David, which means somehow that Jesus is from the house and line of David. So I've wondered about it, but it hasn't been core to me. And this week, this week... I learned, I read, that by some understandings, that apparently for the book of Matthew, for the gospel writer, God's miraculous action included the miraculous folding in of Joseph into the lineage of Jesus. That somehow the enfolding of Joseph and his story into the Advent story, that's what makes it, that's what makes it an Advent story. The anticipation, the unfolding, the miracle of Joseph somehow being part of this family line. So it scratched an itch for me, but if I had to guess, no one else cares that much either. Like about Joseph's lineage. It's about as interesting maybe as talking about dreams, or as interesting as when I confirmed with my friends that we had not in fact discussed the advent calendar in Waking Life. I said to them, so it was just a wasted dream cycle. I dreamed about an advent calendar, and one of my friends, the more radically a-religious one, said, well, almost all dream cycles are wasted. This one, he said, was maybe just closer to not being worthless. From behind me on the beach, Fern said, do you put stock in that kind of thing? Like, what meaning do you make of it? And I hemmed and hawed. Because the other place I recognized it from was from the end of one of the Narnia books, when there are people who sail farther and farther to the east, and as they sail toward the end of the world, they get quiet on their ship and their hunger quiets, and they kind of just subsist on water that they pull up in a bucket over the edge of their ship, and the water is so clear that they can see something following them under the water, and eventually they realize it's their shadow on the ocean floor. And they keep going, and they don't know what's out there, and it's the end of the world. And the water was so clear, and the sky was so big, and the colors were so 
cold blue and sandy tan, and things back at home, back here in Chicago, were terrible. They weren't as bad as they were going to get, but they were bad. And I had been talking and feeling and thinking and joking about the end of the world and burning it all down and changing everything. And we walked out toward Whitefish Point, and Fern, who was still behind me, said, you've been scared of the end of the world, but this is it. And it turns out it's beautiful. So we kept walking. I wonder if what Joseph dreamed about his feelings was that it might be okay after all. Whitefish Point itself was occupied by nobody but seagulls who we displaced. And then on that point, we could see the water on the north side. And that water wasn't clear. It was dark with depth and choppy, and all of the sudden I understood why there's a shipwreck museum there. 500 shipwrecks around that point, and I was suddenly aware of them, and of all the people who were in the mire at the bottom of the lake. When a group of us first learned that song that we've been singing, Night of Nights, Somebody at church said that they weren't sure how they felt about singing Come Night of Nights into my heart. It's a little scary, maybe. Somebody else making art with Elena said about this theme, holy darkness, I need the light at this time of year. I need the jingle bells. I need the joy. Me too. Me too. But so many of us are carrying a place all the time that is dark and choppy. It's just where we live. It's a danger. And it can be a challenge to plow through the season. Maybe this placement of Joseph's story and what he dreams that it might be okay anyway in the midst of all the chop. Maybe that's why it's an Advent story too. Maybe that's why it's worth it to read a long poem about a homeless shelter or sing Sounds of Silence the Sunday before Christmas. The other dream that Joseph had in the book of Matthew was a dream of warning when Herod was set on killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He woke from that dream and acted as well and took the family to safety in Egypt. The world is always dangerous for some people more than others. We need the darkness. We need the time to dream. We need to listen for where God is pointing us. Out on Whitefish Point, Fern said that it was the narrowest part of the lake. We could see Canada dark on the horizon. We stayed for a while and made a lot of meaning out of that. And then we walked back to our car. And about halfway between the point and where we had left our car, I looked north and I looked south and there was nobody. And I thought, even if someone has feelings about what I'm about to do, they couldn't get here in time. So I pulled off all my clothes and I walked into Lake Superior. I'm going to, what, swim to Canada with no clothes on? 
I got into the water, and it was so clear, and not that cold. Clear and still and beautiful, and in the water, I thought, a gift. A gift, a gift. I climbed out and sat on the rocks. We both dried off in the sun. When we got back to the car, we cleaned as much sand off of us as we could, and we drove back to paradise. <laughs>